Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you remind us constantly that we are not alone in this life of faith, but that we belong to the communion of saints and that in the heavens now there are saints watching, cheering us on. Oh Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might live lives that are pleasing to you and cause rejoicing in heaven. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that now you would uh, fill us with that faith and fill us with the will to obey you. Give us eyes to see you and to hear you, to know you better. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning we've heard one of the more memorable stories in the Bible. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnaces right up there with David and Goliath or Noah's Ark. It doesn't quite reach Adam and Eve status, but it is a fantastic story nonetheless. Unfortunately, though, when the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace is typically told, it's in isolation from the story that precedes it. And in order to fully appreciate the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, it must be told against the backdrop of the preceding story, the story that Dree preached about two Sundays ago while I was out of town. I know it's a tall order to recall the sermon text from two weeks ago. You've slept since then. My memory resets every evening too. So let's do a little recollection. The piece of the preceding story that provides the relevant backdrop for our current story is the troubling dream that sent Nebuchadnezzar in desperate pursuit of an interpretation. You will recall that in unprecedented fashion, Nebuchadnezzar demanded that his wise men, magicians, and diviners not only tell him the interpretation of the dream, but that they begin by telling him the content of the dream as well. And none of the wise men could fulfill the king's request, but one. And that one was Daniel, because God graciously revealed both the dream and the interpretation to him. And Nebuchadnezzar's dream was of a huge and frightening statue, the text tells us. It was a statue of a man, but his body was segmented and composed of different materials. The head was made of gold, the chest and arms were of silver, the torso and thighs were of bronze, the legs were of iron, and its feet were a mixture of iron and clay. And as the statue stood there, fixed in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, a rock came out of nowhere, and it struck the base of the statue, and the whole thing came crumbling down. It was turned to dust. And the imposing statue, reduced to a fine dust, was blown away by the wind. But that rock, which came out of nowhere, remained, and it grew in place of the statue, turning into a mountain that filled the entire earth. And the reason God gave Nebuchadnezzar this dream was in order to humble him. Nebuchadnezzar was a young king ruling over the greatest nation in the ancient Near Eastern world. He was accomplished, accomplished and unstoppable, and he walked with a swagger, exuding confidence and pride with every step. But his strutting was interrupted by this unwelcome dream and its interpretation. For this dream, this statue was a vision of the future. 
Although Nebuchadnezzar was the head of the statue and although the head was made of gold while all the other body parts were made of inferior materials, still the head stopped at the shoulders as all heads do. Another kingdom was going to take over and another kingdom was going to take over that and another after that until one day God would finally set up his own kingdom in the world that would grow until it filled the whole earth. This dream was God's way of reminding Nebuchadnezzar that though he be great, he is only temporary. It's God alone who lives and reigns forever. God was sowing humility into Nebuchadnezzar's heart because humility is the seed that grows into gratitude and praise, which is the purpose for which humanity was created in the first place, to bless and praise and thank our God and creator. We are worshiping beings by nature. In fact, philosopher James K. Smith would like for us to no longer refer to the human species as homo sapiens, that is, beings defined by our minds and intellect, but rather as homo liturgicus, beings defined by worship and love and gratitude. These activities directed towards God are humanizing and fulfilling but they are only possible for the humble, for those who believe their lives to be temporary and acknowledge that over them and across all time, there lives an eternal God upon, upon whom all things rely and to whom all praise and thanksgiving is due. The witty Catholic theologian G.K. Chesterton once wrote that the worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful but has no one to thank. What Chesterton is saying is that thankfulness, the, the emotion that enlivens and animates human beings is hollowed out when it's separated from humility. There's no one to thank. And so thankfulness, apart from humility, bends in on the self and it turns into the vain enjoyment of, of pleasure and the pursuit of immortality apart from God. The Christian who is reminded that they are dust and to dust will return is humbled by this statement. And that humility issues forth in praise for the one who is able to turn dust into living, breathing flesh and bone. But apart from faith in God, the reminder that you are dust and to dust you will return, the reminder that you are only the head of the statue that's going to eventually crumble and disappear issues forth in denial and posturing about permanence in the face of anything that might suggest otherwise. I wonder how this reminder of your mortality strikes you. James calls humanity a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Psalm 103 says that our days are like grass. We flourish like a flower in the field, but then the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place remembers it no longer. Can you receive this word? Is it offensive to you? Is it full of fear? Or does it breed humility that issues forth in praise and worship of the God who created you? The very purpose for which you were created. In our story this morning, we see that Nebuchadnezzar's response was defiance. In an attempt to humble him, Nebuchadnezzar was given a vision of a statue in which he was only the head of gold. And in response, Nebuchadnezzar 
built a statue of himself that was gold from head to toe. In verse 1, we're told that King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits and whose width was 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. By making the statue of solid gold, Nebuchadnezzar was trying to assert his permanence. By making it 90 feet tall, about the size of two semi-trailers stacked on top of one another, Nebuchadnezzar was trying to assert his greatness. And by setting it up in a plane where it could be seen from a long way off, he was trying to declare himself omnipresent, seeing all things that happen within his kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar's dream reminded him that he was but a creature, but Nebuchadnezzar built a statue that insisted he was a god. And to make it crystal clear that this was what he was doing, Nebuchadnezzar made it a requirement that whenever music was played, people were required to stop what they were doing and bow down to the statue he had created and worship it as one would fall down before a god. And if you refused, well, Nebuchadnezzar would turn you into dust. He'd throw you into a furnace and reduce you to ash. Remember, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it was God who turned the statue into dust. But here, Nebuchadnezzar again defiantly insisted that he was God. He held the power to turn people into dust too. And so he did. But he didn't have the power to raise people from the dust. He could destroy, but he could not create. It's the, limit, it's the limited position of our adversary, the devil, who can only twist what God has created, but has no actual power to create on his own. Only God can create. And it is the knowledge of this God, this creator God, that emboldens Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to make one of the most faith-filled speeches in all of Scripture. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And in verse 16, they tell him, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O oh king, then let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O oh king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. And it's these three words, but if not, that are truly remarkable here. Those three words are the words of true love. Why? Because those three words reveal that the obedience of these three men is not motivated by anything else, not even their own self-preservation. They're willing to give up everything for the sake of remaining true to God. One scholar writes, this is the character of truly ethical action. It's motivated by the intrinsic merit of the action, not by its positive or negative payoff. And that's right. It's, this is truly ethical action on display. It's action motivated by pure love. It's the sort of love that the devil doesn't believe exists. And he's always trying to expose as fraudulent when he constantly puts Christians in positions where they must choose between truth or some personal loss, whether that be a friend, a job, or in the most dramatic cases, life itself. He believes that we love and obey because we get something out of it, as if this is some exchange, because God blesses us to throw out a misused word. 
and to prove him wrong, we must incorporate these three words, but if not, into all the prayers, uh, into all of our prayers and weave them into the fabric of our faith. But if not, God's able to do anything. There's never a question of ability when it comes to God. Yes, the three men say in verse 17, if our God is able to save us, then let him do it. But they're not talking about ability here. Rather, they're talking about willingness. It's a, a statement of, of deep humility. They recognize that God allows things to happen in this world that are incredibly confusing to us. And that we have such a limited capacity as human beings to comprehend why he does what he does or why he allows what he allows. It's clear throughout scripture that the triune God of the Bible does not always keep his faithful, his children from danger. In fact, in Jesus' prayer recorded in John 17, often called the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays explicitly not that we would be removed from this world with all of its troubles, but rather that God would keep us in faith as we experience it. It's not a matter of ability with God, whether he can save or not. He's limited by nothing. He is able to spare us from suffering or disappointment. But if not, then what? Can you hold in one hand the faith that God can do all things and yet humbly state, but if not, I'll love him still? Because that's true love. That's true faith. That's the Christian life. And that's exactly what we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego modeling for us in this story. Why should we trust a God who doesn't always give us what we want and often allows those things that cause us pain or disappointment? How can we say there's hope to be found in a God who's constantly reminding us that we're going to die? And the answers to those questions are found in the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to worship Nebuchadnezzar's statue, as we already saw. And as a result, they were thrown into a furnace that had been heated seven times hotter than normal. A temperature that illustrated the strength of Nebuchadnezzar's anger over the defiance of these men. With their hands bound, they were shoved into the flames, but the fire did not consume them. In verses 24 and 25, a puzzled Nebuchadnezzar asked, Was it not three men that we threw bound into the fire? But I see four men unbound, walking in the middle of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a god. Three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were thrown bound into the fire, a fire so hot that it engulfed and consumed the guards who threw the men in. And yet they were walking around unbound in the middle of the fire. And walking with them was a fourth person, one who resembled a God. And the identity of this fourth person is not the point. The point is that whoever he was, he had come from God to show us how God cares for his faithful ones, his children. He does not always spare us from the fire. To be sure, he sometimes does, but those deliverances are just delays because disappointment and disease and death come to us all. He does not always and will not always spare us from the fires of this life, but he has promised to be our companion in the fire, 
to give us the strength to walk in the heat of the moment, to stand upright when all we want to do is lay down and go to sleep. He preserves us in faith and in Him even when the world is pressing in on us and the ground underneath us is giving way. Wherever you are, there He is also, comforting you. The prophet Isaiah says one of the most beautiful things about this God whom we worship. In Isaiah 42, he tells us that our God will not break a bruised reed. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And in the next chapter in Isaiah 43, God speaks these words to us through the prophet. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Fear not, for I am with you. Yes, he allows us to experience suffering. But he does not permit us to experience anything that he is unwilling to subject himself to as well. If you have any doubt about that, then look at the furnace and the fourth man walking with them. Ah, but that's just an ancient story without any real real historical bearing, you say. Then look to the cross. For there's no doubt that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified in the first century by the Romans. Bart Ehrman's a well-known agnostic, and yet he, even he admits that the crucifixion of Jesus by the Romans is one of the most secure facts we have about his life. He entered the fire. Why? So that you could look to the cross and know that he will always be with you. Sufjan Stevens has a song called To Be Alone With You. Some of its lyrics read, You gave your body to the lonely. They took your clothes. You gave up a wife and a family. You gave your ghost. To be alone with me, you went up on a tree. Jesus was born a baby and lived a full human life. He suffered and was disappointed and even tasted death. Why? To be alone with you. Because he loves you. What God is there who is willing to subject himself to such misery to be alone with the ones he loves? To be alone with you. There is no other. But the story does not end there. Because as comforting as it is to know that he's always with us, his his tenderness is only palliative unless it's accompanied by power. It only addresses the symptom without providing any real relief. It's nice to know he's with us. But can he do anything to stop the suffering? Can he actually fix this world and our disappointing lives? Can he make things good? Can he make it new? Our our story this morning offers an emphatic yes to those questions. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego climbed out of the furnace like they were climbing out of their graves. And to everyone's astonishment, we are told in verse 27 that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. It was miraculous, unbelievable, you might even say. But what those men experienced was a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope that is extended to all those who trust him. Jesus didn't go up on a tree 
and give himself to death just to be alone with you, but to save you from death itself. Not in this life, but in the one to come. We will all die. But for those who trust Jesus, death is but the door through which we must pass in order to enter into the life of eternal joy and satisfaction that he promises, that he now lives. Jesus descended into the grave and experienced the eternal abandonment and condemnation of God compressed into three long days so that we won't have to. Though we die, he will raise us from the dust. And as it was for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so it will be for us. All will marvel that death, the thing that we fear, has no power over our bodies. Because we believe in one who is more powerful than death, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he loves us to eternity. And this relationship with him, this love that he has for us, and the feeble faith that we have for him in return. This relationship gives us the boldness to say in this life, these three scandalous words, but if not. God is able to save us from all suffering, but if not, he has promised that our stories do not end in suffering, but in glory. It's a posture towards life and suffering that is so unusual that it won even the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. For our story this morning ends with this pagan king confessing, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see, those three words, but if not, resonate deeply with a world running from death defying the inevitable in an anxious attempt to ignore it and achieve immortality on their own. But if not, are three words that can only be spoken by those who have no reason to fear death because they walk with someone more powerful than death itself. But if not, can you say these words? I pray you will. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.